Welcome to the Brook, but it's with GK, but one of the pastors here at the church. If you have Bob, go ahead and grab it. Meet me in the book of Exodus. Uh, we're actually going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 for our time together today. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. You could track with us. The words will be on the screen so we could track through the text uh, together. We are in the beginnings of a series called A People. Now, A People is where we hope to walk through the marks that mark us. Uh, they don't only mark us, that they move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. Now, I have been absolutely dominated by this question, what do we want to hand over to the future? Now, it is not just something that is rooted in the then and there. There are real implications in the here and now. And what we want to hand over to the future is an idea and an example. The idea is that there is weight and beauty to life with Jesus thirst for it. And the example, it's us. It's a people. A collision of diverse stories, experiences, Coming together, guided and grounded by that idea that there is weight and beauty to life with Jesus. And we should thirst for it together. As we grow in that identity collectively and individually, and we embody it well, the possibilities are endless. Change in the here and now relationships restored, communities transformed. The, possibil the possibilities are endless. The things that mark us really are these values. They create the environment for that vision to flourish. They mark us and move us forward. There's three of them. Let me give them to you. The first is our growing desire for God shapes everything. Our growing desire for God shapes everything. The second is we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. We become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. And the last is our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Our neighbor's good is as important as our own. These are the values behind the why for everything that we'll ever do that ultimately determine the when for how we celebrate and say, yeah, we could clearly see how God is working in, among, and through us individually and collectively. They are what we not only hope to be aspirationally, they're what we are now. They're values of identity. But they're also vehicles that show us how we grow. We grow a people from all people by growing a desire for God that changes everything. They're vehicles for growth. And so that's why for the remainder of the year, we want to take those values and we want to show what are the habits, rhythms, or streams that we could swim in, if you will, that allow us to grow well. So this week, next week, and the week following, we're actually going to be looking at that first value, our growing desire for God. 
shapes everything. And we'll be looking at the habits that cultivate a growing desire for God. The first habit is this one, encounter God. The first habit to cultivate that desire is that we would actually encounter God. Now, which each habit, each rhythm, each stream, what we'll also see is there's a complementary statement or idea to help us understand why that habit, rhythm, or stream matters. And for Encounter God, what we're saying is we recognize, understand, and are convinced that who we believe God to be shapes everything about us. So when we say encounter God, we're saying encounter God as he is, not just as we would like him to be. Encounter God as he is, not just as we would like him to be, because who he is shapes everything about us. Who we believe him to be shapes everything about us. Now, implied in that are a few implications. The first is that believing God is both immediate and decisive and progressive. So there are some immediate changes that are felt as we believe God, some decisive things that happen as we believe God. But there's some progressive experiences that are in front of us as well. In other words, belief pulls us deeper and takes us farther. It pulls us in. There's a depth that's implied to believing God and being shaped by what we believe. Now, we know this to be true. Like, in all relationships. I've been married going on 11 years and I knew some things to be true about my wife year one that I am experiencing differently, more intimately, with more depth year 11 and I'm being subsequently shaped by it. And so I knew her to be this amazing creative who had this unique capacity to bring order to chaos or beauty out of chaos. Uh, sometimes that capacity shows up in OCD tendencies, but she's human. So am I. We're all humans, right? And so I am shaped by that aspect of her and how I believe that that's actually something beautiful. And so the throw pillows, they don't frustrate me as much as they once did, but I now see them in accord of how she's bringing organization and beauty to every aspect of our life from the way that our room is set up to the routines that allow our kids and us to flourish. I've been a Christian going on 20 years. God met me in my teens and he met this hurting 15-year-old who was traumatized and trying to figure life out. And he introduced the weight of who he was and how he had plans for all people, self-included, and all of life. And how there was this reality of sin that would try and deter and destroy and alter the plans God has for people. And it would try and destroy and diminish people themselves, that sin brings death. And he met me there. He says that though sin brings death, I bring life, that I am powerful, I am caring, and I am tender. And I comfort and I meet with you through Christ. 
the expression of this is that I died for you and instead of you. And everything changed. And I knew that to be true. And in 2011, my little brother was murdered. And everything I knew to be true had to go deeper. I, ha- I, had, to, I had to progress in what I believed that I, I, I couldn't just rest on what I knew to be true as God, as comforter when I was 15. I needed it again. And it shaped me because that's the nature of relationships. So implied in there is immediate change, decisive change, but progressive change. Implied in that truth that who we believe God to be shapes everything about us is a few questions. The first being, well, who do you believe God to be? What do you believe about him? And then the second being is what we believe about God in line with what he reveals about himself. Who gets the final say in determining who God is? And what's beautiful, enriching, and honestly freeing for us is we don't have to do guesswork or figure out who God is. God's not bashful. No, he's out in front trying to pull people deeper into knowing who he is, knowing that who they believe him to be will shape everything else. He wants us to encounter him rightly as he is. And so we get to Exodus. Exodus chapter three and chapter four is this exchange, this encounter. It's decisive and definitive in the life of the people of God. They keep referencing this. It shaped them forever. It's God, Moses, meeting at a burning bush. And there's a lot that we can learn as we look to this passage, but I must say that Exodus, the scriptures records Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, not prescriptively, but descriptively. It's telling us what happened, what occurred, not telling us that there's something necessarily that we should go and do. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. And so while there's some dynamics at work here, I just want us to make sure that we don't walk away saying, I got to go find a burning bush so I can go encounter God well. No. And if you've ever heard that preach, you have my permission to run hard, run left, tune out that person forevermore. All right. But no, no. Like there are some dynamics here that will lead us to encounter God well. And, and we'll see those as we walk through the text, specifically what's happening at the beginning of this exchange or encounter. The revealing that happens in this confrontation and then this closing experience at the end, which should be our experience as well. So that'd be the time of our text. Like it'd be walking through what's going on in the beginning, the beginning of this encounter, the things that are being revealed through this confrontation and this experience at the end, which should be our experience as well. Exodus chapter Three, um, read the beginning with me and we'll get to work. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. If you mark in your Bible, underline that. I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. That's a term of endearment. That's a term of affection. He is trying to pull him into greater intimacy. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. That he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This is the beginning of this definitive exchange in the history of the people of God. It is a very famous exchange that is often recreated in movies. So maybe you've heard about this because you saw the movie with Christian Bell Exodus. Maybe you've heard about the story of Moses and the people of God and what's going on in Egypt historically because you saw the movie The Prince of Egypt. One movie was better than the other, but what I want to say to us is that we should have a posture that allows the scripture to inform how we view the characters that it talks about. I don't want us going around thinking that Moses was British because I've ran some people who've thought that. Nor should we think that Moses and Pharaoh are like best buddies who had like this unique rivalry, like almost like Johnny and Danny Russo from Cobra Kai, which is essentially Karate Kid from the perspective of, of Johnny. I digress. Rather, we should see the scriptures as source material for the characters that they talk about. And we should say, what do you say about those characters, the people contained in the scriptures? Moses is at a unique point in his life where he ran away from Egypt because he had killed a man. And God still met him. God was kind to him. God protected him. God was still with him. But God is trying to pull him in to go accomplish the promises God made to his people of old. And so in this encounter, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on the sequence to overemphasize what's happening here, but the sequence matters and it is helpful for us. And so, so God is on the pursuit. He is active. He is pursuing him. So he's appearing as a fire in this burning bush, yet the bush is not consumed. So God pursues Moses Response. He sees this. He's intrigued. He turns aside. God pulls him deeper. Moses, Moses, this affectional call. And not to overemphasize that, but the sequence there does matter that God actually is pursuing and we have a responsibility to respond. But what's interesting about his response was it was sparked by intrigue and curiosity. And I think that matters, too, because, you know, and I know that curiosity is what catapults us into greater discovery. And it's the absence of curiosity, the lack of curiosity that cripples discovery, it cripples pursuit. And as you use that in a relational context, the lack of curiosity actually will cripple intimacy. And so some of us even don't have intimacy with God. We're actually not encountering God because we're not curious at all. We've kind of figured him out. There's no more intrigue that moves us to investigation. There's another aspect here that, that I do think matters too in the fact that this was this captivated moment and he acted on it immediately because one thing I know about 
you and I know about me is we have this spiritual attention deficit. So like we, we, <laughs> we get turned aside easily. It's like that dog from Up, you know, the Disney Pixar movie Up, like an emotional roller coaster tearjerker, but there's that dog in the movie and he's like, ooh, squirrel, like all the time. And he's easily distracted. And that's the same with us spiritually. We don't have strong attentiveness regarding the things of God. And so we should act immediately when the spark is present that moves us to investigate. But there's another aspect here that I think is, is, is rich and powerful too. Moses didn't wake up that morning looking for God. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that, that that should be us, but he didn't wake up. No, like, you know, today I'm going to have this meaningful encounter that's going to change the course of my life. Like, that's not what took place. Moses was going about his business, doing what we would call menial labor. He was living out his, his career as a shepherd, and God met him in meaningful labor. This matters because often we have this tendency to only try and look for God or encounter God in the overtly majestic. And by doing that, we miss him in the wonderful mundane, the everyday opportunities in front of us that if we're more attentive would lead us to greater encounters. Moses saw, obviously, it was this dramatic demonstration of God's pursuit and responded accordingly. But we don't need dramatic demonstrations we just need attentiveness because God is always on the pursuit. This is Acts 17, that he established the boundaries of our habitats and he is near to us. We just need to be more aware of what he's doing and where he is. And in order to be aware of what he's doing and where he is, we have to be clear on who he is, that we would believe rightly. That's why the dynamics of this confrontation, it's a confrontation, are fascinating. And so, so Moses, after responding, he hides his face. He's starting to understand who it is he's talking to, but it, it leads into this, this, this confrontation because God is calling him to do something courageous. I have heard the cries of my people, the cries in their oppression, and I'm going to send you to deliver them on my behalf. And so you're going to go tell the people I am with them and you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses now engages with God in this conversation, which is really a confrontation with a series of, nah, fam, I'm good. <laughs> you got God, you got it. You take care of that. Send somebody else. Yet in the course of this conflict, if you will, he poses a question that is powerful and shaping for us. Verse 13, it reads like this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so, so Moses is going to God. He's like, all right, tell me if I go, let's, let's play this out. Let's say I go, well, tell me who, 
who I should tell them is sending me. Now, some commentators believe that this is Moses trying to get the upper hand on God because in Egyptian lore, if you knew the true name of a God, you had some type of power over him. And so the, the true name of the sun God was Ra. Isis found it out and was able to have power over him. And so Moses being raised in the house of Pharaoh would be aware of some of the lore there. And so some commentators are like, this is Moses trying to get the upper hand. And now God is responding forcefully. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think there's some other stuff at work here, which is we do see the timidity of Moses throughout his life. And in this moment, God is appearing to him in the bush. And I think there's an element of sincerity. He was like, all right, God, well, who am I going to say is sending me? And God responds in kind. He gives him his name, but before he gives him his name, he gives Moses his nature. He builds to his name. He builds to what he's going to be called forever and ever, remembered in every generation. That's the end of verse 15. He gives him what he's going to be called by first establishing what's core to his identity. I am. It is the Hebrew verb to be. He is saying that core to the identity of God, the nature of God is that of self-existence and truth. And so it could be read, I am that I am, I will be what I will be. I exist because I exist. I will cause all things to exist. There's so many ways to, to engage with this, but the, the core of this is the designation that God gives himself as the God who is. The God who is definitively and descriptively. Definitively in self-existent, true, standing alone as a one and only God. Descriptively in that I am the God who is, comma. Now, let me invite you to understand aspects of who I am. Now, we see that invitation because throughout the interaction in this confrontation, you see aspects of God's attributes. I mean, there's an abundance of attributes here. You see God's patience, that Moses is hitting God with the knife. Nah, I'm good. You, I'm good. You good? I'm good. And, and God doesn't do away with him, yet he endures for his sake. He endures for the sake of others. His patience is otherworldly. We see his justice, that he, he actually heard, saw the oppression of people and said, that is problematic, and then he moved to act. We see his tenderness, that I'm going to be with you. We see his holiness, take your sense, that there is this unfolding of the God who is. God gets the final say on who he actually is. I am. And Moses was shaped forever. By finally believing that you are the God who is, and now I can walk and move accordingly. Now, we have the privilege of hindsight, not just the privilege, really the responsibility, because 1400 years later, Jesus comes on the scene. And in John chapter eight, while he's engaging with the Pharisees, he says, hey, I know I, you keep saying, am I greater than our father Abraham, but you need to know before Abraham was, I am. And they knew what he meant. 
because they grabbed stones to stow them. They were like, oh, it's, we gotta, you got to die because you are claiming to be God. You are asserting this unique place relationally among us. You are asserting this name that we don't even dare utter. Yahweh, I am. And so, so there, <laughs> Jesus has these claims of decisive descriptions of what God is like. So in, in the Gospel of John, you have about seven of these I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the way to truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the door. And there are all of these statements unpacking the beauty and scope of who God is. Now, this moves us to understand encountering God well. We encounter God well through relationship with Jesus because he is the definitive, descriptive designation of who God is and how we should believe in God, what we should believe in, be believing about God and how that should be shaping everything about us. Now, we don't need a burning bush to encounter Jesus. We just need attentiveness, intentionality, the word of God, and the people of God. So Jesus, confronting these Pharisees again, John 5, he says, you search the scriptures looking for life, but they point to me. Jesus, in Luke 24, verse 27, he's walking the disciples through the despair because they're like, oh, is this, is, are you really true? Are you, I know you died, but did you really resurrect? And so there's despair in their hearts and he starts to walk them from Moses to the prophets, telling them truth about himself. And how all the scriptures point to him. Thus we encounter Jesus through his word. Even when we pray the word of God back to him. But then Jesus says that though I am seated at the right hand of God, waiting for the right time to move, just like I waited for the appropriate time to deliver my people from Egypt, I am waiting for the right time to deliver my people from the world as it is and usher in this ultimate glorious renewal. But as he's waiting, seated at the throne, we who believe in Jesus and the gospel, the good news, are his body telling the truth of who he is to each other and the world around us. Thus, we encounter him, not necessarily by looking for a burning bush or looking for the overtly majestic, but the wonderful, simplistic truths we see in the word of God and the experiences we have with the people of God as well. That's why even the experience of encountering with Moses did lead to a greater experience for the people of God. The end of chapter four, he tells them they respond with worship. Their ended experience is worship. That's the case every single time. The end of every encounter is worship. Not elaborate praise, elaborate or spontaneous singing, but to move in lockstep with who God is. Well, that's worship. And any understanding of God that doesn't lead to the worship of God is a misunderstanding of God. So we're not encountering him if worship isn't being produced. Right thoughts rooted in right affections producing right actions. Moses' encounter 
and the descriptions help us. Because God is who he is, Moses was forever changed. And because Jesus is who he is, we could be as well. Because God is fill in the blank, we can fill in the blank if we encounter him. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we would encounter you well through the beauty of your word and allow you to have the final say regarding yourself. Because when that takes place, we are shaped forever in beautiful, noble, true ways. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.